Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This is episode 103 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Blythe Yost, co-founder and CEO of Tilly, about weeding and mulching tips. You'll definitely want to hear her opinions about dyed mulch, rubber mulch, and volcano mulching. The plant profile is on the dwarf crested iris, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in our What's New segment. This episode, we're joined by Blythe Yost. She is the founder of Tilly, a online landscape design company servicing the USA and Canada. She's a nationally recognized landscape architect. And welcome, Blythe. Hi, so glad to be here. Good to have you. So uh, tell us a little bit about Tilly and where you're based Definitely. Tilly is a, an online landscape architecture and design company, like you said. Um, we started um, basically because we think everybody deserves access to good design. So our primary projects are smaller yards, people who wouldn't typically hire a landscape architect or landscape designer, and we service the entire country. So we do projects all over. I think we've done projects in 49 states and Canada. Um, and our workforce is dispersed. So we were a COVID-friendly workforce before that was even a thing. And we don't actually have a headquarters, um, but we are, have designers all over the country. Wow. So we'll probably get into more of that in a bit. And we're going to talk all about weeding and mulching tips and um, how the homeowner could use those and also your services online in a little bit. But first, we want to talk about you, Blythe, and your background. So we always ask here on the Garden DC podcast, were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? <laughs> Maybe. It's a good question. I was always that kid that was outside with dirt under my fingernails. I think that was potentially more likely than chlorophyll. Um, my mom would say it wasn't tan, it was ground in dirt. So I went to college as a plant science major, always into plants. And my first semester discovered something called landscape architecture and switched over to that pretty quickly and actually found my found my calling. It's so great that you have the plant science background because I hate to say this, <laughs> but landscape architects all often have the reputation of, you know, knowing design well, but not knowing their plants well. I totally agree with you. And that was definitely one of the focuses of the program. I went to Cornell University. The landscape architecture program is actually part of the agriculture school, which is very different than a lot of other landscape architecture programs. Um, and I would agree, landscape architects learn about grading and parking lots. They don't necessarily learn about what plants go where. So I would concur, sometimes gardeners are way more plant knowledgeable than landscape architects. But plants are really my first love. I, I like them more than parking lots. And what's your own home garden like? Um, all the things that were left over from someone else's, um, <laughs> there are inevitably things that either don't make it, somebody doesn't like, you know, leftovers. So my job is to try to squish them all and make them all into something lovely. Um, so it's a constant work in progress, I suppose is the best way to answer it. And where are you based out of? I am in New York, just kind of north and west of the city, uh, suburbia. Mm -hmm. but it lends itself well to um, smaller garden spaces. And we can, we, we would be zone. Gosh, it's so funny. I can't even tell you what zone anymore because it's so it's changing so rapidly, uh, but we're probably 6B. And so with the online landscape design that Tilly is doing, are most of your clients, you said you have clients in 49 states and you probably want to get that 50th so you can claim that. I'm going to guess that's Hawaii or Alaska. 
No, it's neither one. Um, I feel like it's Nebraska or one of the Dakotas. Ah, um, and I don't recall which one. No, we've actually done a couple in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, some really fun projects. And we I, de- we definitely have one Alaska. We were super proud to put that feather on our caps. And so can you describe the process a little for somebody who might come to the website and want a landscape design done? Are they just getting the design and implementing it all themselves afterwards? Yes. So our process is purely design at this time. Um, so if, if somebody did want to do their do their project, they would come to Tilly. We offer a front, back, or full opportunity. So you, you don't have to design the whole yard if you don't want to. Um, and we offer up to two acres. Um, anything larger than that is is tricky for us to do from a remote standpoint. Um, so you would come in. We ask you for a bunch of information. Um, we ask you for photos of your of your site. We ask you for a site survey if you have one, and then we'll pair you with a designer who has native plant knowledge in your region. That was something we discovered was really important right away. Um, I don't know anything about California or Texas. Um, I'm a New York East Coast designer, and it. It's really important to make sure the plants are are correct for the region. So we'd pair you with that designer. Um, you do a video call with them, and then they jump into design, and um, we turn around designs in about two weeks. Hmm, that's pretty quick, I would say, two weeks. The design process is. Usually there's about a week on the front end kind of gathering all your information and setting up that call. But it's it's important for us to be able to get good design to people quickly. And then once they have that design, they would have like a list of materials or plants that they would purchase? They have a a list of plants um, and a list of materials. And we just started offering um, plant delivery services across the country as well. So it turns out actually purchasing your plants is a a pretty big pain point for a lot of people. People aren't comfortable um, with substitutions or comfortable with, you know, is this if I can't quite find that? Can I put this in? Or, you know, how do I know that it's a healthy plant? Um, So we launched plant delivery services um, about four months ago and have had great success. It's been super fun, super interesting. And we've made, we've partnered with a ton of great nurseries across the country delivering plants. And we're hoping to, we're working to work, make that more of our kind of core service. Um, You know, you get your plan and then also your plants from Tilly. I would, very surprised that that is the pain process because that's the most fun of the process to me <laughs> is plant shopping says the plant person yeah. but not all of our people are plant people <laughs> that's so funny but yeah maybe a plant personal shopper is needed or just people are as you said not comfortable if that you know particular salvia is not in stock picking another salvia totally and even you know our plant lists are um all appropriate for the region, but that doesn't mean your local nursery is going to carry them. We had one client in Florida who rented a U-Haul and drove all over the state trying to pick up all their plants, Um, just not because the plants we specified were wrong, but because the nurseries only tend to carry what's what's looking great, what's in stock, what's available, what sells, and that's not always what's the best for your landscape. Yeah, I would say that that they had quite a task. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, and then I, it sounds also like they wanted an instant garden, which often isn't going to be the case. You know, it's all about the process. Sure. And I guess they wanted everything at once planted at the same time. So that's going to be hard for a lot of people. Definitely. So then once they have it installed, that brings us to the maintenance side of things that we're talking about today with you, which is the, the weeding and the mulching. So maybe we'll start off our talk um, on the mulching side of things because you know it's the time of year when you're cleaning up your garden getting it ready for entertaining and if other people's gardens are anything like mine's all of a sudden in the last two weeks the weeds have leapt up they've you know doubled and tripled in size um, so let's talk about maybe mulching materials and maybe define a few things for us to get started so what do you generally use when you mulch your garden I tend to use a natural bark chip mulch. I only use natural natural mulches. I don't like any of the dyed products. Um, I don't think that they are great for the soils. 
Um, I've read and learned they're, they're often, you know, pressure treated lumber that's been ground up and then dyed. Um, so I tend to only use natural, natural bark chip, or, I mean, I love, um, a leaf mold if I can get it or make it myself. Um, so the more natural, the more organic, the more kind of the closer to compost, um, in my opinion, the, the better it is. There is a material that's pretty, um, localized up here called sweet peat. I don't know if you've ever run into it, um, but it is a um, composted wood shavings from like horse stables. Um, and it's beautiful stuff if you can find it. I think Nutripeat is another one. And it's it's a much kind of finer texture than than the uh, bark chip, but it kind of does the, the same thing. It's just really pretty if you can mm-hmm. find it. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, I'd love to have uh, trial that but so you mentioned leaf mold so for our listeners we should probably define that a little more because some people use alternative terms for that so sometimes they'll say shredded leaves or partially composted leaves um, and as you said leaf mold I'm trying to think of the other words I hear people use for that yeah that's a much nicer word than leaf mold I suppose mm-hmm. that sounds like kind of grody um, <laughs> but yes yeah, shredded leaves and I think you can actually purchase leaf shredders I have always just kind of bagged leaves in, in black plastic and then you kind of set them aside in kind of a forgotten spot under a deck or something for a season or two. Um, and they, they kind of partially decompose, like you're saying, um, and form that nice kind of rich hummusy material that still inhibits weeds because then the, the leaves layer on top of each other um, and kind of give you that uh, a more significant barrier than using just a traditional compost or something like that. Some municipalities that collect leaves will sell you or give you um, leaf mold um, or composted leaves. So it's sometimes worth checking with your local DPW or, or uh, highway department. Yeah, here in the Mid-Atlantic, we have something called Leaf Grow, G-R-O, like all one word. Um, And that comes from the composted leaves and yard trimmings um, that are picked up and then brought to a central facility in Montgomery County and and Prince George's County. And I was just looking at their bag, and they call it soil conditioner, which I I didn't even think about that, that they are putting the the biggest words on the bag are soil conditioner and 100% organic. And then when you look them up under um, what category they are at a, you know, like a hardware store or something, it says leaf compost. So that's, I think, the best word for it is, you know, partially composted. You, you still can recognize pieces of the leaves, but they're not the whole or, you know, just been shredded leaves. Sure. And I think the challenge there is trying to differentiate that from true from a more compost that you, you would use as an amendment, mm-hmm. you know, trying to define what's a mulch and what's an amendment. And I would agree with you. There's not, it's definitely a gray area. It's sort of like what your soils need, right? If an amendment, a, a compost or a leaf mold or, you know, any of that is going to be less, less uh, weed inhibiting mm-hmm. than a bark chip or something that's a little bit of a bigger green, bigger grain. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway. But your soil needs it. It's such a good thing. Exactly. And I would say that it's also a spectrum of how quickly those materials are going to break down and add into the soil. So like with our heavy clay soils, um, that is one of the best things is leaf Mm -hmm. grow, that that soil conditioner, what they're calling it at that point. But I do use it as a top dressing and I will mix it in with planting holes when I'm planting something. So it won't be a hundred percent leaf grow in the hole. You know, I'm going to put some yeah. native soil in there, but it's going to be a, a good handful of it, at least with it. So that does bring up using compost, straight compost as a mulch. Do you ever do that? I do. Um, not significantly and certainly not on a, like a commercial basis. Not certainly not like even on other residential projects. Um, mostly sort of in my own garden because I know what it's I'm prepared that it's not going to hold the um really hold the weeds back I don't think it's not going to do much for that but it's going to do great things for your soils um I think compost is the best thing we can be adding to our soils I'd rather see people using that than any sort of fertilizers um at least reach for the compost first um I think you're you're totally spot on using it in all of your your new plantings, new planting beds. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about using a mixture of your native soils and compost. 
um, rather than bringing in a, a bunch of kind of topsoil, um, which seems to be something that those landscape architects like to specify all the time. Uh, but turning compost into native soils, you're inevitably going to create a deeper rooting media for your for your plants. Um, so although I wouldn't potentially reach for it as my first mulch solution, um, I think it certainly has a, a place in that in that space and. Um, I mean, if you're not going to have the time to turn it into all your beds, then put it on top um, and you'll get some of the, the properties, um, even if it's, it's not perfect. Yeah, I would say I'm definitely the type of gardener, I'm going to call myself a lazy gardener or a too busy gardener that I'm not going to be working it into the soil, but I'm going to let the soil microorganisms come up and do that for me. Totally. And they're going to do all the work and it's going to disappear. So that's one other factor I guess we can talk about in mulching materials is the hardship you were talking about is going to last probably most of the growing season, right? But a really fine composted leaf compost or leaf mold that might disappear by you know june or july and need a second uh application or and then maybe even a third at the end of the summer yeah and i think that's where education comes in because i definitely have people who are like oh and i have to mulch my yard every year and i'm just like well yes it's the best thing you can possibly do for your garden um and they're like well when i buy that red dyed stuff it stays around for four years and (laughs) the point is like maybe you don't want it to um, so something that doesn't break down, it's it's not going to be as good for your plants. Um, so maybe, you know, us lazy gardeners, I'm totally in your camp. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a, uh, a balance doing good things for your soil, but also keeping the weeds down and keeping the beds looking looking clean. Yeah. And I mean, if I always tell people if it disappears, that's a good thing. <laughs> it didn't go away with the wind. It worked its way into that you know, hard pan clay soil, if that's what you have, or if you have sandy soil or, or whatever else that's it's sure. helping to amend it. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about some materials for mulching with that we love or hate or, you know, don't even care about. <laughs> it could be neutral about. So you mentioned the dyed mulches, which are, yeah, not a favorite of mine either. And I have to bring up the rubber mulches that are being sold now and ask what you're thinking of on those. Ugh, um Again, like, do you want a whole bunch of rubber and ground up tires all in your your soils? Um, they are not going to do anything good for your soil, in my opinion. Um, they do stay around for a long time. Um, so maybe lo- the longevity piece is is a plus if we're trying to find find silver linings. Um, but I don't I don't feel like putting plastic or rubber um, ground up on your soils is a good move. Um, some people will use it under playgrounds and I don't I don't even love it there. I don't really want my kids playing in a bunch of ground up tires, but there are um, poured, poured rubberized surfaces that can be nice under playgrounds um, that stay put and don't move around because that's the other problem. I mean, it just gets everywhere. Um, so I don't, I don't think that rubberized mulches and I, along the same lines, um, gravel mulches are very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in sort of the mid-Atlantic Northeast region, they're a little bit tricky um, just to keep clean and keep looking nice. Um, out West, you see a lot more of them and down in Florida, um, but in the right place, a gravel mulch can be the right answer. You're just going to probably need a weed barrier underneath because it's certainly, it's not going to totally do the job. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I like the look of a gravel mulch in some areas, and especially if you can have a level area or like a herb garden mm-hmm. or a rock garden, that's always nice. But, you know, you need that, that weed barrier cloth underneath. And then, you know, after a couple years, dust, soil, birds, poop out seeds, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to have to weed that, but it is a more permanent mulch. And, you know, I've seen those like white marble chips that people use around foundation plantings. And I'm like, well, it looks great now and maybe yeah. next year, but don't think that that's not going to need, you know, pulling up and weeding in a couple years. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. And I, just from a design standpoint, I would, I would err on the side of a a local, a native stone, as we say, um, you know, whatever your, your native stone, which is going to be less expensive if you're going to do a gravel, just because it'll be easier to find. And if it, it's, it's not going to be as 
vibrant as the, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the marble chip. I feel like that's all you'll see in that yard. And then once it gets like a little bit of algae, it'd be like the green marble. So <laughs> potentially not the best solution for longevity. Yeah, unless you're doing like a Mediterranean themed garden. Sure, there's there's always an exception. <laughs> Maybe there's use for that there. I was, that was also thinking of when you were saying the pea gravel is, you know, those are great for the pathways in between. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to do turf grass pathways, you can definitely lay down some, you know, weed cloth and do a nice pea gravel. And it's always fun to have that crunch and that texture and you know there'll be a little maintenance but not as much as it would be around plantings and beds um i've also seen in our area especially in chesapeake bay uh ground up oyster shells and other materials that i've been trying to source so i'm always like what can you reuse to be in the pathways where you wouldn't have to weed as much much and hold down that so of course wood chip bark is great but some of those um other materials that we can think of that we could reuse um and so another one i was thinking about was pine fines Mm -hmm. and also chopped straw and that's more for using in the planting beds not in a pathway though now do you guys use um pine needles in your your region are you a little too far far north for that we're kind of on the edge so it's being used more and more i will see in local gardens in the mid-atlantic and we had just done in washington gardener magazine a story on a pennsylvania seller who's starting to sell pine finds in kind of like a bale that you pick up from Mm -hmm. them so you, you don't get it delivered you have to arrange and do a pickup and then you get this tight bale and they're long pine fines so they're like that long pine mm-hmm. needle i guess it's over i think it's yellow like, pine that they yeah use. it's a longish one so it's definitely a different look but and it sticks around longer it doesn't break down as, does. as quickly but it's really pretty i see it a lot in north carolina gardens and i think they do it really well i had a, a i worked for a company that used it in new jersey and it looked very strange and i felt like it didn't do a great job holding down the weeds, but it would stay around forever. So you'd have all this, these pine needles and then you'd have all the weeds. Um, but I think further south, they sort of know how to do it. And I think it sort of almost like mats, it mats itself together. Um, so it becomes pretty impenetrable um, in mm-hmm. just observations. I think it's fascinating. I know, I don't know that much about it, but that's super interesting. You're seeing it creep northern, northward. Yeah, I'm trying it out just around my, a couple roses. So cool. I just want to try it as different textures. And I've chopped the pine fines a little bit smaller and finer. So they do create that mat, but then it doesn't look like, you know, a big fluff, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was super <laughs> fluffy. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, if it's a denser planting, you're not going to see that. Well, that does bring up um, another type of mulching or manure or compost in between plants, which is a green planting. So using other plants to be that understory and that weed blocking by maybe a ground cover plant or layering of plants. And I think for the lazy gardener or what, what you had another term that I thought was much nicer than lazy, uh, busy, the busy gardener, the busy gardener. <laughs> <laughs> which certainly defines my life. That is pro- usually my, my default um i like to plant kind of end to end make sure that all the spaces are filled um i love creeping perennials and things that will um kind of come up at different times that way even if you do have a few weeds you just don't notice them because you have so many other wonderful plants coming up through um kind of those full dense beds tend to be my my preference rather than sort of uh shrub space shrub space or even perennial space perennial and it does require you know more plants up front um but as we dig and divide move things around your plant spread your garden ages um i do think that that's sort of my always my goal always my dream that i don't need as much mulch i mulch the fringes i mulch the back sections but the middle is sort of taken up by the plants yeah, I have a friend um, who works in public gardens who has a huge pet peeve about seeing mulch. Like he always says, you should not see the mulch. <laughs> I love it. That, exactly. It. I totally yeah. like your friend. Mm-hmm. So, but there's definitely the American aesthetic that you described where it's, you know, a bed 
of full of mulch and then maybe three shrubs all isolated by themselves, not touching, and then some isolated perennials in front of them. So I think that's just what people are used to seeing, um, say in commercial Mm -hmm. um, places like, you know, your local shopping center or something. So that's what they imitate at home. Whereas um, really what we want to see is plants touching, intermingling, and overlapping, which is a little bit harder maintenance-wise, but in the end, less work. Totally agree. How do we tell them all about that? (laughs) Maybe just as examples and just showing them. So the, the more we can, you know, model that that type of garden and make that the norm the more people will use it but i think there's a lot of people selling a lot of bags of mulch in the springtime so it's <laughs> true i would agree with you we might be battling a whole industry there um and of course it's easier to just do the one and done like you said earlier like my one spring mulching yeah you know, just your hands off and then that's it for the season i'm not going back out there except for to mow Um, And then it looks nice and neat. So that's a way to control. Um, So it does bring up one thing about mulch is it is a weed barrier. Um, So when we're talking about ways to fight weeds, the the more permanent and thicker it is, the better. But what do you advise for thickness for, say, the wood chips that you're applying? Well, we we have to talk about mulch volcanoes, right? Um, do you guys know what, do you know what I mean? Where there's a, a tree and then somebody has just mounted up mulch after mulch after mulch around the tree. Mm-hmm. And it just, you have inches and inches and it's sort of strangling the tree. Um, so I would never have more than two inches if you can avoid it. Um, potentially if it's someplace where you're not anticipating any, any plants ever growing, but the, the plant, the mulch will not only inhibit the weed growth, it will also prevent some plants from spreading, like little vincas and little ground covers, um, need to be able to creep onto a little bit of soil to 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 grow. Um, so two inches is sort of my two to three inches, maybe four in like a back spot, but um, always want to keep mulch away from from tree stems and even your plant stems. Um, you don't want to be building it up against anything. The other piece is like make sure it stays away from your foundation. You don't have want to have a big um, build up of mulch along your siding, it'll, it'll, it'll rot your house or along your air conditioning unit. Um, so building much mulch up against things is never good plants or, um, or, or structures. Yeah, that's great advice, especially to pull it back, you know, along those edges of your foundation and from the tree trunks, it should be, you know, close to maybe within a couple inches, but not actually touching, which reminds me of, I think it's called arterial fungus um, that could be in your hard uh, wood mulch and you know if that's up against the house you'll get this like um, looks like a spray of a shotgun of mold across your siding and people are always like like did somebody throw mud against my house or something but that comes from this mold that kind of like explodes in the hardwood bark Um, and it's always interesting to see that and the less you can have it close to your house, the better, because it also introduces, of course, termites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All sorts of all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. mulch is great in its space, but you don't want too much of it. Too much of it can be a problem. Yep. Yeah. And let those tree roots breathe a little bit. <laughs> they don't need to be suffocated with a huge layer of that. So that brings us to other ways we can combat weeds. So we talked about doing that nice layer of mulch where plants aren't growing. So if there's any bare soil that you're not planting in, what else can we do to combat weeds? I mean, not everybody doesn't want to hear it, but the best way to combat the weeds is pull them out um, before they flower, ideally, um, and pull them out fully and completely. So that's part of, you know, having a trowel um, or one of those fancy little forked um, spades is useful too. Um, and pulling, you know, when the soils are, are, are looser, so after a rain is more useful too. I really, that's the only thing I feel like I'm, I'm good at advocating. I don't really feel great about landscape fabrics that would be like a, a weed barrier, um, just kind of put across the bed. Again, it, it sort of strangles the soils um, and prevents those other plants that we're trying to get to inter, intermingle and grow together, prevents them from doing that. 
Um, and also the pre-emergence, like a, a preen, I think that's a, a kind of a pre-emergent, um, but the things that go that you would broadcast in the spring that kill weed seeds, actually they, they prevent germination, but that's beside the point. Um, but those again will help, will, they'll, they'll damage your soils and they do make life easier um, and it's a balance. So maybe there are beds that you, that need to be either, you don't need a, you need a landscape fabric so you can focus your time on other beds, um, depending on how large your yard is. But I really think tried and true, pull the weeds out, you know, have a five gallon bucket, do a few at a time, try to get to the board, to them before they flower. Um, to me, that's the best answer. Yeah, I would say early and often is probably the best. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. Then there's always the ones that sneak in that you missed the first time because they blended in so well. Um, or the vines that sneak in like under a shrub and up sure. there, and then you're like, ugh, so I have to get under there and get that one. What are your personal weed enemies? Like maybe oh, give a top three. I for- have a thistle. Just, oh. This is my own personal. Like, I don't know where it comes from. I've gone at it so many times and it was up. I swear it was up like three months ago. I was like, where are you? How are you here? It's it, nothing else is even green. And there's the thistle just kind of popping up. And I think it's moderately rhizonomous. So it has, it sends uh, lateral roots. So it just pops up everywhere and you can't pull it out without gardening gloves. So even it has to be like a production. You have to prepare to go out and get the thistle. So that's certainly my own, uh, my own issue. But um, it, I guess it's more about the invasives. So when you start getting barberries that creep in or, or not weeds, like those really noxious rhizonomous weeds that you pull them, you think you get them all. And then just, bloop, you know, you left a tiny piece and it shoots up and it's brand new. And it's like, you were never there. Those are the weeds that make me crazy. There's also the good weeds that you pull out and you're just like, ah, it comes out easily and cleanly. And you're like, I did it. And you make a huge, a huge, uh, a huge improvement by pulling one weed. I feel like Garlic mustard is one of those um, when you just pull it out and it's just like, huh, gone. Um, so they all have their own hierarchy and I'm sure every gardener kind of has their own, their own cross to bear. And then the ones that they're like, I got those, those are a piece of cake. Yeah. There's something satisfying about getting that, like the whole weed root totally. and all, or like pulling a vine um, along the ground that just comes up like a zipper. And that was like such a, you know, a monster that was coming through the bed. And you're like, Ooh, that was, that was easier than I thought (laughs) when I I got that. So that was, that's always satisfying feeling. How do you actually feel about weeding Blythe? I never asked you that. Like at the beginning of our conversation, we should have said, is it something you enjoy doing? Is it a Zen meditation or is it something you dread? Oh, it's a good question. I definitely don't dread it at all. Any excuse to get out into the garden. Um, I think the challenge is finding the time for me. I'm definitely that busy gardener, running a business, having kids, all the things. But in my perfect world, if I had all the time, I would go out and weed all day. I mean, it's a great way to kind of get in the dirt. Um, Weeding allows you to kind of be with your garden and spend time thinking about your garden. Definitely is a level of meditation um even if you're just meditating on like what to do next like oh I didn't know I had this hole here like what can I plant what can I what can I move I think it's a great time to kind of think through your your spaces a little bit very true and how do you feel about reseeding plants that you planted so um on the spectrum of letting things kind of go a little bit more wild and letting plants return maybe in other spots that you didn't originally plant them in versus keeping things very in check. I have told many a client when you see like a little, a little foxglove popping up or a little um, alcamilla or whatever it is um, that that's, that's the, the harbinger of a good garden. You know, when you're, when your plants that you planted start becoming your weeds you're doing something right, in my opinion. Um, I think that's what we should all strive for. Um, so volunteers are definitely my favorites, but I think you know there's something to be said about it. Um, any plant that's growing in the wrong place should be considered a weed. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a tree or a tiny little uh, clover. Um, if it's not where you want it and it's your garden, um, then it, you should feel fine pulling it out in my opinion that said 
you know, have a little flexibility just because you didn't want it there. It wanted to be there. So give it a minute. Think about it. And if it's, if it's growing and it's happy, like see what happens. Yeah. And if it's a weed peony, send it my way. Ooh, I want one of those. <laughs> yes. Now I always tell people that, you know, when you're cleaning up around the garden and something's not in the right place, you know, and you don't want it, pot it up and bring it to a plant swap or give it to a newbie gardener or somebody else because they're definitely going to want it. Absolutely. And I think like digging and dividing is super important. So, you know, populating your garden that way, but that's, that's not what we're talking about today, but that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think sort of in the same vein as volunteers Mm -hmm. moving things around. That's part I feel like that's kind of in the same vein as weeding, you know, moving things around your garden. Things don't always have to stay, stay put. So are you the type of gardener who comes home from the garden center with a bunch of plants that you didn't intend to buy when you went to the garden center that day, and then you have to figure out where to plant them? Or do you always go with a plan in mind? It's a good question. Only because I don't go as a landscape architect who like, but I feel like I don't end up with, I don't have, end up going to the garden center. I end up with somebody's cast off plants and then I have to find homes for them. So I think it's probably maybe the former, the person who all the plants you didn't intend to buy, except I like really didn't intend to buy them. Um, they weren't even, I, they were for somebody else's house and they landed in my yard. So now I get to use them up which is a fun challenge for me. I love that. I love trying to figure out how to how to work all these stragglers and find homes for everyone. But I certainly don't have, in my own garden, I don't have a plan. I have a plan for everybody else's garden. Um, but my own is kind of a work in progress, but it has structure and order, order. And I do have some things that I know I need to get, but that's more the structural plants. So I like to build a garden around a few structural plants, you know, maybe a few hedges, some evergreens, a few things that have rhythm and order, and then let the rest of it be a little bit haphazard or wild. That way you you, you have a backbone, but you still have a little room to play. And how are you um, with weeds that just will not quit? So those are the ones that noxious weeds that keep coming back. Are you okay with using a chemical like Roundup or do you just keep on top of um, cutting it back, cutting it back, cutting it back, you know, every time it pops back up? It depends on where it is. Um, I have, I've been battling some Japanese knotweed um, for a long time and that you know, despite all my research, um, really the only way to really get at it is with some, some Roundup. If, if I've done that and when I do that, it's, it's a spot treatment. So it's painted on, you cut the stem and you, you paint it on. So it's not a broadcast. Um, so I, there are definitely some really bad invasives out there that I'm prepared to bring out the big guns. Um, but for the most part, I would never go rounding up my thistle. I'll just complain about it and keep working at it until it goes away. Um, so it depends on the weed. Um, but thistle, thistle is just annoying. Whereas roundup or roundup, um, not weed is, uh, you know, a really nasty, nasty plant. That's one of the ones I was had definitely in mind when I asked the question <laughs> because I do have readers asking about that. Also, um, mulberry tree seedlings, mm, like in cracks yeah. that are just not stopping. Like you can cut them all the way back, uh, but that once that root gets established in that crack, you know, it's just not quitting on them. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes if it's got to go, it's got to go, or else you're going to have to pull up the whole sidewalk or side of the house or whatever it is. And I think our last question about weeding, I went to ask you is about in containers so do you have any tips for that that's interesting i weeding in containers so you know i find my my the squirrels will bury things in my particularly my front containers and i get suddenly a little oh baby oak tree um so you know it's generally pretty easy to pull things out um because your soils are loose um but I don't, you know, you always, I always want to pull all the things out. I don't want the competition, the root competition um, in my containers because it is limited, limited space. So I'm, if I'm planting my containers, I want the things that I want in to, to, to flourish. So I would definitely keep after the weeds. It just, you have to pull them out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put some sort of barrier down or, or even a mulch. I don't think it's really worth it. I think 
a container is a space that you you want every square inch of soil to be filled by sort of by design um even if you are that gardener that likes you know bush space bush yeah and i definitely can relate to the squirrel scaping that happens in <laughs> containers and moving things around and you know adding those little baby trees that all of a sudden come up the next year and you're like what is that what? coming out of that, <laughs> that container um so any last thoughts on mulching and weeding tips um I, you mentioned mulch bags and I think just how, how the mulch is getting delivered is kind of interesting. Um, I will say, I think bags are probably the easiest for the, for the average gardener, just cause they're easier to move around. Um, however, it's going to be so much cheaper if you just get some mulch delivered, you get like a yard delivered, um, and do walk it around with your wheelbarrow. So I think thinking about how, how it's going to be delivered, then there's less waste that you don't have to throw out all those bags, which I kind of love. Often, what was it? Often and oh, what was early, your little your little early, early, and, early and often? Early yes, and often. yes. I think that's brilliant. I I love a little a good a good plant adage. They're some of my favorites. The one I tell people all the time is like the growth cycle. First year they sleep and then they creep and then they leap. So early and often on the weeding, I think that should be the takeaway. Yeah, and I love what you said about the plastic bags that come with a lot of mulch orders. Um, because you know bulk is a lot easier if you can if you can handle it i know some people that's the only way they can get it is bagged to bring around say to a backyard where a delivery just isn't going to happen because there's no alley access or anything else like that but i do know a lot of people who are giving that issue thought these days of how we can cut down on those plastic bags Um, if there's a way to have reusable bags at some point or some other type of unique solution so Hopefully, you know, uh, in the market, we'll see something come up in the next few years. Yeah, I love that. That would be great. Reusable mulch bags. I've seen them for soils, Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't seen it for mulch. Yeah, I don't see why if you could do it for soil that you couldn't do that for a mulch as well. So that's something to keep in mind. And uh, you had mentioned getting the weeds before the flower head forms. And it's not because we don't like what weed flowers look like some could be pretty right yes totally (laughs) it's because we want to grab them before they go to seed and then i wanted to give a little warning out to listeners so so once you pull a weed that has the flower head and start to go to seed that should be evacuated from your property like not added to your compost pile yes otherwise you'll have lots of little babies all over yeah because most of us just don't have a big enough compost pile to get enough heat to kill the weed seeds that's just not going to be possible at at a home garden yes i think that's that's great advice weed seeds are and those are the ones that get in all the little cracks and then you have a zillion a zillion more things to pull up yeah that does also bring up um quality of what you bring into your garden so you referred to some of the the deliveries you can get and we talked about some of the the nicer grades of mulch and compost out there so free is great and you know i'm all for free but sometimes free comes with a catch right (laughs) that they haven't um heated it up enough or they haven't sifted it enough so it's going to come with some debris materials that you're going to have to sift out or it might come with some weed seeds in it so that can happen a lot you know with a municipal pile where they're just straight chipping a tree and that might bring maybe some poison ivy in with that yeah i mean i think that's a great point there's nothing more disheartening than spreading a bunch of mulch and realizing that you actually added to your your weed burden so I think that's that's a very very good cautionary tale yeah I think I think most experienced gardeners have had that happen at least once or twice while they've been gardening is that they added something in um, maybe they got you know soil from somebody or a site that they didn't know or maybe they brought some straw in that had a chemical on it so definitely beware and ask questions for your sourcing that's great advice. Blythe, so where can our listeners get in contact with you for more information about Tilly and yourself? You can go to the, the Tilly website. It's tillydesign.com. So that's T-I-L-L-Y. Um, you can schedule a call with um, our, um, our customer service department if you have any questions about the Tilly services or just kind of browse through them there. 
Um, there is, we're available on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. I think we're just recently on TikTok. Very exciting. Um, and then if you want to get in touch with me directly, you're, you're welcome to email me. It's just blythe at tillydesign.com. Um, I'm happy to chat or, or get you in the direction um, you might need to go if, if Tilly would be a good, a good answer for your garden. Great. Thank you so much, Blythe. Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Dwarf Crested Iris Plant Profile The dwarf crested iris, Iris cristata, is a small iris that is native to the eastern United States. This dwarf iris is beardless, and it faces right up at you, unlike so many other woodland and native flowers that require you to peer at them from a snail's vantage point. It grows just a few inches tall and is best suited for the borders of woodland paths and fronts of part shade flower beds. When not in flower, the narrow foliage is like that of bearded iris, but as it is much smaller, it is hardly noticeable. The bloom time is late April to early May. It blooms on the previous year's growth, so it will take a year to establish and flower after planting. It spreads slowly by underground rhizomes. It's easy to divide and share or put in different spots around your own garden. If you want to propagate it by seed, allow the seed pods to dry on the plant, then break them open over an envelope to collect the seeds. They are drought tolerant, trouble free, and require no care once established. It does well in rock gardens and on slopes as well. Iris cristata, you can grow that. What's new in the garden? Well, it's been a soggy week, but the flowers love the rain and it's making weeding easier. In local gardening events, I wanted to draw your attention to a fun one hosted by Common Good City Farm, and that is on V Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., right near Howard University and Hospital, and it's called a Salad Slam. This sounds like a lot of fun. It's Friday, May 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. And you can register in advance for that and get your tickets. There's going to be free food, kids' activities, farm tours, and a book signing uh, with Janice Evans, author of Recollections About Race, Getting to the Roots, and Healing. Other upcoming local events are Saturday, May 14th at Green Spring Gardens, their Big Spring Plant Sale. Look for the Washington Gardener Magazine booth there, and that is free to attend. You can find out more about that at fairfaxcounty.gov under their Parks tab. And a quick reminder that my co-author Terry Spate and I will be at Brookside Gardens on Monday, May 16th as part of the Silver Spring Garden Club meeting. Terry will be giving a talk on her other book, Black Flora, Profiles of Inspiring Black Flower Farmers and Florists. And we will be signing our book, The Urban Garden, before and after that talk. And of course, she'll be also signing copies of Black Flora. Both books you can purchase from the Brookside Gardens gift shop or bring your copies of the books and we're happy to sign them there as well. You can find out more about that at silverspringgardenclub.com. Happy gardening! If you're a crafty gardener, like myself, I want to introduce you to Let's Make Art. 
I do a lot of DIY projects in the garden, from painting my garden gloves, to creating kokodama, to pouring my own stepping stones. And there's a company that can make it easier for you. Let's Make Art is a revolutionary crafting company that aims to help everyone to channel their inner artist, whether they're three or 63. With the assortment of products and subscription offers, there's an endless opportunity, fun and access to easy to understand tutorials and resources for everyone to learn a craft or take up a hobby. Anyone can have art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits, and supplies for a variety of activities. You can start learning basic lettering techniques to get your more familiar with your abilities with hand lettering for that garden journal you might be keeping. You can also shop all the best lettering supplies, boxes, and kits curated and approved by in-house artists. There's free weekly art journaling tutorials by art journaling artists and instructors. Everyone can join with their supplies at home. Grab the prepackaged kits or get all the videos first with an art journal box subscription. Learn from watercolor artists and instructors. Whether you're a total beginner or you've mastered the arts, let's make art takes the guesswork out of watercolor and creates easy and fun kits. The only thing you'll need is a brush. Let's make art simple together. Check out Let's Make Art today by going to our special link zen.ai forward slash garden DC. That's zen.ai forward slash garden DC. Happy crafting! In the new book, The Urban Guard by Kathy Jentz and Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making Making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.